Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. And today we're joined by two very special guests. Very special. So special. The specialists uh, of specials. We have uh, Doug and Ben from the Swift team. Hi, Ben and Doug. Hey. Hello. Glad to be here. Uh, do you want to introduce yourselves to the listeners in the very uh, rare case that a listener might not know who you are? Sure. So uh, my name is Ben Cohen. I uh, work at Apple on the Swift standard library team. And I'm Doug Greger. I work in the Swift compiler, uh, language design, and dabble in the standard library once in a while before Ben cuts me off. Yeah, so Swift 4.1 is uh, coming out pretty soon. Uh, there have been uh, some announcements on the Swift.org blog uh, about progress, uh, specifically conditional conformances and improvements to generics. And you guys played a uh, pretty big role in uh, seeing those features through. Was uh, that a question? Uh, or, uh, yeah. uh, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You've done a lot of work. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's really awesome to see all this uh, culminate together. And uh, I, for one, am very excited to start porting all my projects to support it. So it's it's a big release. Lots of changes along, along those axes of generics and uh, standard library Changes in order to uh, to incorporate those uh, language changes as well. Um, so there's a lot to cover here. What should we start with, Jesse? Uh, how about the generic systems uh, improvements uh, in this release? Yeah. So uh, do one of you two want to give us a high level overview of kind of some of the big ticket items uh, that are included for development with generics? Yeah, so um, so this time uh, the generic system has reached what I guess Doug has been uh, describing as its first important plateau. Um, and this is where a lot of the features uh, of the generic system that were, have been long anticipated since the very beginning of Swift are really coming um, into the language. Um, and that's really been important for the standard library um, because a lot of the standard library has been designed with these features in mind, even from the very beginning. Um, a lot of these features were anticipated and uh, there was a lot of code in the standard library that was built around the assumption that eventually um, certain types would fall away, certain code would become unnecessary once we had these features. So, uh, for example, with conditional conformance, we had a whole bunch of um, duplicated code stamped out multiple times um, to produce essentially the same type with more and more features. And uh, with these generics capabilities, um, we've been able to basically eliminate huge swathes of that code, which is a very satisfying thing, to be honest. In fact, I think... Um, Doug, who normally works on the compiler, was actually uh, unable to stop himself from from doing a little bit of Swift programming on the standard library uh, itself in order to use some of the features he's been working so hard on. Um, and and really, it's it's getting us to the point where the standard library is using these features in the way that it was always intended to, and 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 that's a really nice thing that to be able to see come to fruition. And that like that stamping out, those are the jib files that you're speaking about. Yeah, mostly. exactly. So, um, so because we knew that in the future, um, essentially, let's say two different types, like um, the basic slice type and the really quite elaborate, in fact, the longest name in the of the standard library, random access mutable bidirectional slice. No, 
random access mutable range replaceable slice. That's um, a great name. Yeah. So really those were essentially tongue, yeah. Yeah. so those were essentially the same type. It's just that all of those extra words in the second type were lots of extra features um, uh, that, that required a base uh, generic. Um, type to to support in order to build on top of those and produce all of those different capabilities in in the basic slice type. Now, um, with the old mechanism, what we would use is this templating mechanism called JIB, uh, which stands for Generate Your Boilerplate, um, to um, essentially write one source file but that actually would get post-processed and turned into multiple source files to stamp out the same identical code in multiple different types. Um, and now, uh, with the new generics features, we have the ability to just produce one type and then use conditional conformance to layer on top of it all of the different capabilities based on the capabilities that that type is wrapping, basically. Well, it's nice to see that Every developer likes deleting code, uh, including the uh, Swift core team. Uh, and I think a lot of um, Swift developers themselves, when they incorporate Swift 4.1, will also be able to delete some of their own code, which everybody loves. Yeah, uh, That should really be the, the banner features. Uh, Swift 4.1, delete all your code. Yeah. yeah, no code is best code. Yeah, it is. Uh, which, I, I mean, one of the big things that we'll be able to delete are custom equatable and hashable implementations, which is also coming with 4.1. Well, in fact, uh, it's, or I guess it's in the betas now. Yeah, so, so the 4.1 release will, will officially uh, uh, add that, um, which, you know, a lot of the groundwork had been laid prior, uh, prior to that, and uh, the codable implementation also had uh, large hints of this uh, kind of approach um, as kind of a, a future direction where types that conform to codable can then compose those types uh, for new types and still conform to codable. Um, so yep. the same thing's going to happen with hashable and, uh, and equatable. Uh, some exciting developments there. Yeah, and that's, that's a wonderful proposal because... That was entirely introduced by the community, implemented by the, the community. Uh, Tony Elevato pushed this entire proposal through right. the process, got it implemented in the compiler. And it, it does save a ton of work to just say, this is a simple struct type composed of equatable things. Make it equatable. Let the compiler do the work for you. And then you don't have to maintain this boilerplate code. Right. Not just about saving work, but also reducing the potential surface area for bugs as well. Um, there's yeah. a, an article recently mm. that was explaining uh, how frequent programmer errors are uh, in the most trivial of tasks, such as implementing equatable uh, functions. And, and this blog post was more focused on C language family uh, projects. Um, but if you've ever built your own um, equatable function in Swift, you've probably seen this yourself, where you have lhs.member uh, equal equal to rhs.member. And if you're doing this for like a dozen or more properties, it's very easy as you're copy-pasting to forget an lhs and e equals equals lhs, same member, right? Um, and so the, the fact that the, the compiler now generates this for you can, uh, can not only save you work, but also... Um, reduce the chance of inserting really silly bugs. Yeah, the other problem I've had with that is adding a member to a type later on after, you know, it was initially written and conformed to Equatable. Yeah, exactly. And that member, sometimes it may not need to be accounted for in Equatable, but sometimes it does, and then you've just introduced a bug and you have no idea, no way to really track it down. Right. Mm -hmm. Actually, Hashable brings in other considerations. Yes. Of, yeah. If everyone is hand-coding their own hash functions, 
they're probably not doing a wonderful job all the time of getting a good distribution for their hash function, and I they may see performance impacts. So. <laughs> Works every that time. will always work, <laughs> yeah. But maybe not quickly. <laughs> We're patient, right? Your users are patient people, so. mm-hmm. right? And and so the um, the synthesis of Equitable combines really nicely with the generic feature, which is that not only um, does it automatically stamp out those. Um, uh, those equatable functions for you based on the members, but more members themselves are equatable as well because now optionals and arrays are also now conforming to equatable, which means that it's it's not just a question of simple basic primitive types um, getting a synth- uh, being included in that synthesis. Um, now, if you've got a you know an optional int or an array of ints or an array of your own custom struct, um, because those now conditionally conform to equatable when the type that they wrap is equatable, um, you can automatically get synthesis for those types as well. So it all com- those two features combine together really nicely. Mm-hmm. So conditional conformance, uh, you just touched on that, where uh, op- optional of equatable types are now equatable, et cetera. Um, what is, uh, what's, what's the big pitch for conditional conformance uh, in the more generalized sense there? Um, so I'd say the biggest pitch for conditional conformance is it allows generic types to compose better. So if you think of you have an array of some type, you could, and that type is equatable, you could always in Swift use the equal equal operator to, to compare two instances of that array, and that worked. However, you couldn't take the same array and pass it along to a function that required equatable, to a generic function required equatable, because that didn't actually compose. It's just a one-off equality operator. And as a Swift programmer, you bump into these seemingly silly limitations all the time where maybe you try to compare arrays of arrays to each other. That also didn't work. And when you introduce conditional conformances, now you can make protocol conformances compose. So if if your parts conform to a protocol, you can conform to that same protocol. And uh, the system layers very nicely on top of each other. And Ben mentioned the, the longest type, the mutable random access range replaceable collection I think slice so, something. Slice, yes. <laughs> right. Um, and the problem there is you, what it's doing is it's trying to pull all of the various different components into one type name, and you have to specialize all these types. Well, now this basic slice type just composes with the capabilities of the type it wraps. And um, this this is something that's enabled by conditional conformances, and we found is really powerful to express these nice little abstractions that compose with other abstractions in the system. Well, it can also reduce the cognitive load. If you have fewer, more composable types, you don't need to know that, and I won't attempt to re-say that, uh, that type name, uh, but you don't need to know that that exists, right? You, you can just take the, uh, what's conceptually the base components and, and put them together in the uh, composition that you want. Right, exactly. So this is really, it, it's the, the best thing when we add a feature to the language and it does two things at once. It makes the language more powerful, which is great, but the risk with adding power to a language is sometimes uh, that makes the language that bit more complicated. Um, and that's a pretty tricky trade-off. But the nice thing about this is it both adds power to the language and it also smooths out the learning curve. So people who are new to the language, who don't know anything about um, how to write generic types, they don't need to, whereas previously they would bark their shins on these problems um, that were caused by deficiencies in the type system. Um, but the they shouldn't even need to know about the 
you know, that capability at that point in their learning of the language. Now it's just completely natural. Of course, I can compare two arrays and then I can search for an array in my array of arrays using the, you know, the index of or the contains method um, that comes on every sequence in the standard library. Right. And some of that confusion and that like frustration from the developer side is uh, conditional conformance. It didn't actually require any changes in the grammar, right? Like you could already express this in the grammar. So then when you hit these bugs, that's why it was such a, a wall, right? And yeah, it's something that's always existed in the grammar. We've had the ability to write extensions that conform to protocols. We've had the, well, since Swift 2, I guess, we've had the, the ability to write extensions. They have where clauses. Why shouldn't they work together? Yeah. It turns out there's actually a lot of complexity on the implementation and design side here, but what the user wants to express is something that's very natural mm-hmm. for a programmer that's used to working with these composable units. And so it, it, conditional conformances feels very much like a filling-in-the-gaps feature that's just filling out user expectations, not mm-hmm. striking new syntactic ground or or opening up some new way of thinking. Right. And and the same goes for the other big feature that came at about the same time, which is recursive protocol constraints. Um, so that's always been something you could express. You could always say that one protocol conforms to another protocol, and there was nothing stopping you saying that that protocol was itself. So you could always say that a sequence has a subsequence associated type, and that subsequence itself needs to be a sequence, um, because it doesn't make any sense for it not to be. Uh, but until we had the ability for types to recursively refer to themselves, we couldn't actually express that um, in the in the type system, even though the grammar always accommodated it. Um, and again, that was something that users who, this is maybe the more intermediate user who is just, you know, they've learned Swift, they're just getting into generic programming, they're learning how to write their own generic algorithms on sequence, very natural thing to do, and a mm-hmm. lot of these algorithms that you take out of a textbook would use recursion, mm-hmm. and suddenly they would go, wait, what, the the element of the subsequence I've got here is not the same as the elements of the sequence itself? That doesn't make any sense, and they were right, it didn't make any sense, um, because we didn't have the capability of 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 requiring that in the language. Now we do. Users who are just beginning to dip their toe into to, to generic programming just don't encounter those problems anymore. It just works mm-hmm. the way that it always was meant to. Is a similar issue with string and substring, right? Like substring wasn't also a string? Is that correct? Or So string is slightly different. String is interesting because it's both string and data um, are examples of gener- uh, of types that don't have generic elements. So they always have one element type. They have character in the case of string. Sure. In the case of data, sure. it's it's a U and date. But yes, there are other similar situations like, yes, that um, there was no way of guaranteeing that a string subsequence was a substring and that a substring subsequence was a substring. And, and right. now that we're able to add these constraints, um, Again, things just work the way that you always expected them to when you first started using these types. Um, what's interesting with all these developments on making uh, things more generic, essentially, uh, there's one that stands out in Swift 4.1 that is uh, seemingly going in the other direction, where in- index distance mm. is actually going away from being more generic where it's previously been and kind of unwieldy to, to build generic algorithms on top of and moving towards a concrete int type. Can you explain why going away from more generic and towards more concrete in this case is actually an improvement? Yeah. So um, I think it's important to, to... The way I think about it is abstractions 
are a means, not an end, right? So the goal is not to be abstract. The goal is to get things done, to be able to write useful algorithms against collection and to be able to to, to make your code simpler uh, and uh, and be able to abstract over multiple different types. With index distance, um, the original intent of it was that you could have, in theory, a gigantic collection. You know, maybe in theory you could model something that was, um, you know, many terabytes in size. Um, and what that meant was that you needed what we call an index distance that could be arbitrarily large, you know, long, long, larger than an int.max. Um, that was the theory. But in practice, uh, a lot of people, again, with that learning curve, were hitting a problem where um, they were just assuming that, you know, the count of, an, uh, of a collection was going to be an int because everybody always assumes that a count is an int. Uh, and instead, what they found is that it was this strange index distance type. And then they would find that they needed to compare it to another int, so they'd have to just numeric cast it to an int, which meant that in practice, most people were doing that, including code in the standard library, in a way that meant that it actually wasn't generic truly across any arbitrary distance because um, the, the challenge of writing your code in that way was so great that people would almost always give up and just either constrain it to be an int or do a numeric cast into an int that would trap a runtime. So this abstraction wasn't helping. It was just hurting people from writing good generic code. Um, and so we felt that um, the, the benefits of this future capability were far outweighed by the downsides. And so really what we want to do is make it so that there's a gentle on-ramp onto being able to write algorithmic um, algorithms against uh, against collection. Um, and that's what that change enabled people to do. Yeah, I know I've bumped into this myself and um, kind of felt uh, like a little bit of imposter syndrome where I'm like, I'm, tr I'm trying to get this uh, generic extension done, and then there's this index distance. Okay, now I need to fish other methods that will vend index distances, and I, I think I probably gave up uh, at some point, and so probably just uh, wrote uh, an int constraint. So it's uh, it's nice to see that um, this will probably improve things for, for people. Yeah, we really want to get to the point where you can take an off-the-shelf textbook that has an algorithm in it, and you that's written in pseudocode, or maybe it's written in another language like Java, and you can translate that easily to, to, to Swift. And I think with this release, probably we're getting to the point where that is actually attainable. Yeah. This concludes the first part of our conversation about Swift 4.1 with Ben Cohen and Doug Greger from the Swift team. We have a lot more to say about that release next week in the second half of this episode. So please do subscribe, and we'll see you next week.